Nathan, welcome to Artwood Unleashed. How are you doing, sir? Not too bad. Stephen, how are you doing yourself? Yeah, can't complain. Thanks for asking. Uh, maybe you could start just by telling our uh, viewers what it is you do, what takes up most of your time. So I am a security specialist and an investigative reporter, uh, mostly based in Cambodia, looking at issues like organised crime, various types of security, conflict, uh, trafficking, human trafficking, drug trafficking, arms and and wildlife. Uh, So report around the world a fair bit. But as I said, right now, I'm mostly based in, uh, in Cambodia and Southeast Asia. Originally from Scotland? Yeah, how can you tell? Just, just a hunch, just a wee hunch excellent so um i I mean it sounds like a very intense occupation especially some of the the subject matter you're dealing with Uh, i was not aware of the phenomenon on the crime rather the scandal that is the pig butchering scam i mean that's that's one hell of a description to start with maybe you can explain exactly what that is yeah so pig butchering has been going on for quite a few years now and it, the most simple terms it's, it's basically like most types of online or telephone scam that you get so that process just basically describes when the person gets in touch with the victim creates a relationship that can be on social media it could be over the phone however they do it but you don't actually know the real person develop closer and closer ties whether that's friendship or it's a more romantic angle and then from there they get you to kind of put more and more investment of yourself and then eventually your your finances into some kind of scheme or plot that they've got whether it's it's usually crypto now crypto is the main one Um, but also sometimes things like gold investments and they'll maybe say listen i've got an opportunity for you to make money you've known me for many months you could trust me you know i've done really well Uh, and then they'll maybe put a bit of money in and then they'll get them a return on that cash and then they'll put in a bit more maybe another return and they'll get to the point where they basically put in all of their investments all of their life savings and then at that point they'll actually just cut off contact the crypto site was fake and the money's gone so this has been going on for years and years and you know relates to many of the kind of scams that you get throughout say the uk where, where people you know meet someone on the phone or online and that kind of thing happens What's changed in recent years is the human trafficking aspect to that. Um, So there had been a few cases of this before COVID, um, mostly in places like the Balkans, uh, Montenegro, Croatia. Um, But after COVID in Cambodia specifically, which has a huge amount of Chinese casinos and with it Chinese gangsters, when the pandemic hit, it meant that the Chinese couldn't come in to gamble in the casinos. Uh, Cambodians themselves aren't actually allowed to gamble in the casinos and all tourism was shut off. So you had these huge, huge big venues just sitting there, a lot of kind of agitated gangsters looking for a way to, to fill their pockets. And what they started doing was they brought in people who voluntarily wanted to do this kind of scam. Then they realized along the way there was a way to streamline this, there was a way to force people into it, not pay the majority of them and watch their profits really skyrocket. So eventually got to a stage where they were just trafficking people in from around the world to target people from around the world. Basically, anywhere you can think of, they'll find someone who speaks that language and then target that kind of region. And then from Cambodia, this is really spread. It's spread to neighboring countries like Thailand, Vietnam, um, Myanmar is a, is a huge, huge source of this now, Laos. But also now it's just continued to grow at this um, terrifying rate over the last few years where you'll find it in the UAE, 
Dubai, a few of the other Emirates have this going on. Various places in the Balkans, like uh, like I said before, um, and it just seems to be getting worse and worse. So what that trafficking element means is in Cambodia alone, you've got about 100,000 people, and that's one of the most conservative estimates. That's from the incredibly corrupt government who are massively involved in this and claimed it wasn't happening for, for over a year. Themselves have said there's at least about 100,000 people just in Cambodia alone. So when you start thinking about how much there is in the neighbouring countries as well, places like Laos and Myanmar are the same, where you just got entire cities, entire cities that are taken up with this, and huge compounds in places like the UAE. Uh, you could talk in hundreds and hundreds of thousand people uh, across the world who are the ones who are actually scamming you and taking your money, but they are being brutally tortured if they don't. Right. I mean, there's a lot, lot to unpack. I mean, first of all, we, we both need to be careful to use the phrase human transporting, otherwise the YouTube overlords will, will swipe down on us on this chat. But I mean, I suppose a lot of people's frame of reference for this kind of thing in the West would be sort of like catfishing, wouldn't it? But this hmm. is, this is incredibly different in the sense that the scammers themselves are also victims of the gangs that are hmm. running it. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, so many of them are, but to complicate things, many of them aren't as well. Uh, a lot of the time, right. it, it can depend on the type of person that you are. So, so some people go in and they realise what this is. Uh, they think it's an IT job. I've spoke to victims that thought they were going into an engineering role, and they find out what the job is, and they go, "Oh, no, no, no! I, I don't want to be scamming people. It's not the kind of person that I am." And they say, "Well." You don't have much choice. You're going to do this. Um, then other people go in, realize the job and go, I'm actually okay at this. And if you make enough money from it, then the gangsters start letting you have a bit of cash back in your pocket. And if you're really good, they want to hold on to you. Um, so if you're not very good at it or you don't want to be there, often you get sold between different syndicates and, and you get moved between different countries. Um, but those who are good at it can find a bit of a miserable but quite profitable living. So they, they're a bit of a minority within there, but there are some like that. And it's funny you mentioned that kind of uh, catfishing aspect of it because they've, they've got the technology now to do this and it's basically just supreme catfishing where they have a really sophisticated AI where they'll have a, a fake Instagram account, which will be, you know, say an Indian model from, from somewhere in the world. Um, they'll use her picture, but now they've got the, the AI there to actually have video calls with that fake person and make them talk and do other things online so that you don't really have any question that that person's real. So I think that as well, it's important to remember to always have a bit of sympathy for the people who do end up getting scammed in the end because it can get anyone. And what the scammers often say in Cambodia is there's there's no unscammable person. There's just the wrong script. That's fascinating, isn't it? Because I, I, we all like to think we're above that kind of thing. We all like to think we're quite savvy to the signs of like, for, you know, telephone scams. But these things get more and more sophisticated. So what, what, what you just said there just blew my mind. The idea that you could get an AI gener generated person to appear on video calls and, and give somebody the impression they're speaking to a human being. This, this is actually going on now. Yeah. Yeah. It's been going on for at least two years. Um, that level of sophistication at, at least 18 months. So, I mean, this this sounds like an incredibly well-financed operation. Um, these people that are lured there under the the promise of jobs and, and works, uh, work there rather, um, are sometimes then 
held to ransom themselves if they want mm-hmm. to leave. I read in, in your report. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have the there's kind of key target countries where the people who end up working there come from. Uh, originally, they were mostly from China, um, and they were then targeting mainline Chinese people uh, to try to scam them. Uh, the Chinese government did various crackdowns on this to, to some extent, but then there's also huge levels of kind of corruption within various provinces within China that allow it to happen to, to some extent. But then it, it's really spread to places like Thailand, Vietnam, um, but where you can find kind of the Western languages, where it's like, say, English, if you can find English-speaking people, they're worth a lot more. So they're increasingly targeting places like Bangladesh, India, Pakistan. And then they can use those language skills to target wealthy Australians, Europeans, Americans, um, Brits. And they still want the people with the Chinese language skills as well. And they can be used in a different department. And you can have an enormous compound, like a you know 14-floor building. And every floor has a different room, the kind of size of like a cramped office with doing different scams to different parts of the world. Okay, so I mean... In terms of the authorities, obviously there has been a lot of attention shown on this. You've done some excellent investigative journalism regarding it. There was the BBC uh, mini documentary on it not not so long ago. What what's the official response from the authorities? Because they cannot not be aware of it now. Surely they they must be taking some sort of action. Yeah. So this is uh, the answer to the question is is, is like infuriatingly slow. Um, and it's not that they're not aware of it. It's often that they're refusing to really um, proactively act on it. And there's there's several layers to, to, to why that is. So in Cambodia, like I said earlier, they had initially denied that this was happening. They said, oh, it's kind of like fake news brought in by, say, Western media um, to kind of discredit Cambodia's reputation. Then there was more and more and more victims. There was more and more proof. And then they tried to phrase it as a labor dispute, saying, well, they're claiming they can't leave, but actually they just want paid more. And that's all it is. It's basically just people having an issue with their employers. After, it was about 18 months from when the first pieces of this came out until countries really started to accept what was going on within the region. And the international community wasn't much quicker. It was a few months after the, these kind of countries in Southeast Asia started to accept it that the United States and uh, Australia started speaking out about it as well. And at first, I think maybe there was an aspect of them not quite believing what was going on because it, it sounds so sensational. Um, but then also localised um, international law enforcement, like you know your, your FBI's and, and so on out in that region, They've obviously got direction from DC um, about what issues to, to really push forward. And they are there on the invitation of the host country. So if it's an issue like this, that could really embarrass them. It could create more issues where they push more towards China and away from the US and so on. So there's been a lot of political issues uh, like that. But at the forefront of the lack of response from the authorities um, from the countries where it's happening is just enormous, huge corruption where to the very highest levels of government and most of the countries I mentioned, they are, are extremely high-level government officials operating directly within this world. Is this sort of thing a predominantly Chinese issue? Do they seem like the biggest exporters of scams in the, in the Western world? It seems like whenever I hear somebody having had you know, money ripped from their bank account or some 
goods uh, promised them for a cost that never arrived. It always seems like China's involved. I, I've actually was a victim of this myself over COVID. Mm. I uh, tried to order some too good to be true dumbbells and uh, a resistance band turned up and I had no recourse whatsoever. Still use yeah. the resistance band though, just out of spite, uh, if anything. But is, is China at the forefront of this sort of thing? Yeah, there, there are other countries that are involved in it. Um, especially before this kind of COVID switch from just pig butchering to the actual cyber slavery. Um, um, before that, there were, and there still is, there was quite a few Russians, uh, Russian groups involved in it and um, operating out of Israel, Eastern Europe, the Balkans. Um, but in terms of the actual forced aspect of the workforce, that is very much a Chinese, Taiwanese and Hong Kong run operation. Not all the one syndicate that does it but the vast majority of the groups doing that come from from that part of the world increasingly as well there are some indonesian groups involved but really the, the top bosses are always almost always from china taiwan or hong kong um with a few cases recently in cambodia coming out of the the japanese yakuza have been involved but it's it's predominantly the chinese do we have a huge, I mean, just to take it into, uh, to blindly stumble into politics, I mean, do we have a huge problem with our relationship with China anyway? I mean, it seems like you could you could look solely at their own in-house human uh, rights abuses. Uh, obviously, there's the global pandemic we've all just endured, um, you know, animal rights. Anything you can look at really doesn't bode well for relationships between us and China. However, we have a massive reliance on their labour force for our cheap goods. Is that the reason we're just sort of stuck in this relationship with them and, and have no way of kind of responding to all the nefarious things the CCP is responsible for? There's certainly an aspect of that. Uh, and I think when um, you know, I, I was out uh, reporting about what was happening in, um, to the Uyghurs um, back in 2016 and thought there would be this enormous outrage of it. And then more people did work, more people did work, and eventually everyone knew about it. But British and American, other European governments didn't really do very much about that. And if you're not going to do much about a clear and active, close to amounting to, if, if not actually one, a, a genocide, then criminal human traffic, uh, human um, transit, um, that isn't going to be the switch that gets you either, right? With China and the UK especially, I think it's a especially worrying time because the UK government has made some steps to crack down on the Russian oligarchs. So well, I think that's not been quite as deep as, as people think. And in their place, you've still got this city of london which is just perfect for large-scale international money laundering transferring of your funds and setting up shop as a very successful gangster and, and buying some property in mayfair now that there's a bit less of the russians there there's definitely been a lot more movements of wealthy chinese taiwanese and, and hong kong individuals ending up there there was a story that broke last year um safeguard defenders the organization they found there was over a hundred secret police stations around the world that were being used to essentially harass Chinese dissidents, tell them that their family was in trouble if they uh, didn't stop um, you know, saying bad things about China, whether it was in Germany or in the US or in the UK. Uh, the Chinese government said that, oh, no, these centers are actually just to help renew driving licenses for Chinese citizens. Um, but that's definitely not the case. And we went and visited uh, one of them in London 
uh, found it to be essentially a fake uh, online delivering app uh, with fake addresses registered near it, just full of you know thousands of letters because they've just been basically shell companies for various different gangster exploits around the world. Um, guys connected to this have been taken down on huge trafficking, like drug trafficking charges, and then let go very soon out of UK courts. So this is happening in the UK. UK government has been incredibly quiet on it. And there's Very actually animated been... uh, canine this evening by the sounds of things. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was coming across or not. He's uh, just watching my, my mate's dog while he uh, goes out in a wee day. And, uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's uh, solid mating there for sure. Solid friendship <laughs> effort. Yeah, sorry, continue. Uh, so, you know, essentially there's, there's been very few countries that have spoken out about this and I, and I can't imagine a more kind of egregious uh you know, movement into your own sovereignty than setting up secret police stations to harass citizens living in your country. But it's happening uh, in the US. The police station was in uh, Chinatown in New York. Two people have now been arrested, but it's taken uh, about eight months for that to happen. No arrests have happened in the UK and most of the most arrests of Europe. Uh, there's not been a there's not been an arrest of these secret police stations. So we definitely are just allowing China, not just politically, but but also the kind of organized crime actors that are very closely related to the political actors to kind of walk all over us for sure that's incredible i mean i had no idea about that at all i mean i, I spoke we spoke to somebody on this this very show a few months back who was uh, raising concerns about cctv cameras in the uk that were produced mm-hmm. by a chinese company and i think the argument was that these cctv cameras a lot of them in very kind of sensitive areas could be accessed by the ccp if they so desired yeah. uh is that something you're aware of is that on your radar at all it's it, not specifically to here but obviously the kind of concerns about chinese state involvement in, in any security infrastructure should always be taken pretty seriously um with pretty much any um chinese company there's there's an element where the the state can exert control over them um so i don't think anything's entirely secure if the chinese uh the chinese states behind it all obviously there are loads of legitimate international companies that come from china doing good things around the world but i think anything sensitive or um you know like kind of anything sensitive in nature shouldn't be trusted to a country that's exporting gangsters on this scale or basically committing genocide in xinjiang I mean, before we get back to uh, pig butchering, because there's a lot to cover there, What do you have any views on the proliferation of TikTok, for example? I know a lot of places, I think America, have, have banned military personnel for having it on their phones. Um, there's this argument that it is being used to propagandise, you know, a different output depending on which location it is uh, being accessed in the West, things like that. Have you any thoughts on that? I, I wouldn't go as far to say anything I'd seen actually suggest some kind of effort from the you know from Beijing to use it as is something actually you know has some negative effect to the countries that import it. Um, obviously, there's there's concerns about the kind of the content that can be on there, and it, it makes sense for any security clearance actor in any part of the world to not have. A device on their phone that the Chinese government could potentially have <laughs> access to, but beyond that, to be honest, I wouldn't. I would read into things any more than kind of hearing some kind of conspiracy theory stuff on it. But other than just a basic thing, if the Chinese government have access to an app, don't don't have it on your make your work phone if you're in the FBI. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, it's common sense when you say it out loud, I yeah, suppose, yeah. isn't it? Um, let's talk a little bit about the um, the terminology of pig butchering, because I believe, mm. I mean, who who does the pig refer to exactly, and the who are the, the sorry, who the, are the dogs the in this scenario like, yeah. as well? So the the pig is the actual victim of the scam. So you want to get them as fat as possible before you kill them. So that means giving away as much of their wealth as they physically can before you realize they're right. That's them popped. They're done. So then then you kind of execute your relationship with them. No longer have have any conversations. The dogs are the ones who are actually committing these uh these kind of offenses to, to to the victims and sometimes they can be victims themselves and sometimes they're not um the terminology varies like kind of from place to place and some like news outlets will pick up on a thing and can make it that it's it's universally known but these things can all be run so in such different ways that it can change but overall pig butchering is now understood to be this kind of fanning up the victim but more usually now in reference to the the forced slavery aspect of the of of the kind of process, and and who decided on this terminology? Because I, 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 it seems to be something that the people involved, the, the terms rather, they're used by the people involved themselves. It's not like somebody from the outside looking in has kind of assigned that to it. It seems to be they they use them terms almost approvingly. As far as I know, I think the term came from like a colloquial thing in China. And then it just stuck with law enforcement and the the people doing it, basically. Um, so I'm not sure the exact origins, but it's been around for a while. Like, and it's been around before what's happened in the last few years has been here. And it's definitely been used in China for some time. So it's it's that way where people in China will hear that phrase and immediately know what it is and, and all the connotations that go with that. Um, and now that places like the UK are so much more of a target of these scams, they still don't know what those kind of words mean, it shows how much more education there's needed in this part of the world to, to let people know what's going on and, and be aware of, basically. Yeah, and um, just swinging back to that BBC expose on it uh, that people can find on, on YouTube if they're interested, I think it's about 40 minutes or so. I mean, it seemed... It, it... In that you know small documentary, the targets were predominantly female. The, the targets of the scammers, from what I can see, does this seem like a common theme? They they can be, but I think that um, I know some of the people behind that uh, documentary. It was really well done. I think that um, they they spoke to a lot of people, possibly from from similar um, pig butchering networks. So maybe just what was shown in that documentary was more targeting females. I don't think it. Is always that way. Um, I think any any female or any male that is potentially a bit lonely. I mean, the one that I hear about more is usually you're quite well off, out of shape, uh, you know, guy sitting in his flat in London. Maybe his wife's left him. Maybe his kids don't like him too much, and you know, pretty Zelda from uh, from Bosnia starts a wee conversation online and. Um, and and then it just develops from there and I think if anyone's lonely enough this kind of stuff can work yeah it's sad isn't it I mean it's almost uh, if we're being you know if we're leading with empathy it's almost a double loss for these people because one they're having their savings completely rinsed from them Mm. by a scammer and secondly, they're losing almost this this great love or this relationship or this mm-hmm. bond they they've imagined they've yeah. created with this complete stranger. That must have some sort of huge psychological impact for these people as well. 
Yeah, it, it definitely does. Um, I, I've definitely spent more time speaking to the victims who have been forced to, to do the scams. But of the people who have lost their money, I think it's the embarrassment of it as well. Mm. So obviously, yeah, losing that personal relationship. But imagine, you know, being a relatively successful person, so you've built up a business or, you know, you've just done well in your career and you've got a few quid behind you or in your pension, whatever it is. And then you have to go and tell the kids, I've lost everything because someone on the internet started talking to me and I thought it'd be a good idea to give them my £100,000 that's in my pension pot. Um, so it's humiliating for people. So often that, that first few times that they get scammed, they, they, they know it. And the scammers know that they know, but they'll actually kind of push themselves to believe it and continue that relationship thinking, oh, maybe it's not because they just couldn't. It's almost like they would rather lose more money to have a few weeks of believing that they haven't fallen for something like this than actually yeah. not lose the rest of their money. And again, like it's just anyone who's listening who's been a victim of it or who will be, uh, it's, it's really like it's not on you. There are things that you can do to try and help, but uh, it, it can get anyone. It really can. Like you said, everyone thinks they're they're savvy and together on it, but it, it doesn't take much. And these conversations, they get more and more sophisticated. So there was one place, so it was me and my uh, my partner, Lindsay Kendi, we do all this work on together. And there was a place in Cambodia, and it sounds like something of a film, because it's actually on a, a misty mountain that the, the local people kind of believe is haunted. It was destroyed during the war. There's bullet holes everywhere. and But it's this big, beautiful mountain, and now it's turned into a kind of centre of these scam operations. And we went in December, and there was one that was completely full, maybe about eight buildings, eight stories high each, completely full of, of different scam operations. People couldn't leave barbed wire around, around the area and armed guards and so on. Then a few months later, that actually got raided, uh, which happens sometimes, and then they, they get a tip off before and they get away. Um, so then it was left empty. So we managed to sneak into it just after it was um, kind of discarded by the, by the scammers. And there was notes explaining, right, my target is India. The Indians are now getting too smart about scams. So this is the way you need to open up the conversation if there's any chance they're going to believe you. And they have charts and graphs. They've got whiteboards up explaining the kind of the most likely lines that will will make inroads in different parts of the world. Um, so often, you know, it's not just simple things like, oh, I think you're really, really sexy, Bob from Essex. It can be stuff like, listen, um, supposed to have a hair appointment today or something, and then it's oh, wait, sorry, is that the wrong number? So I didn't get that. Oh, man, i just seen from your picture, though, that you were here. Like, I know something about that, or they'll know a wee bit background before, and they can just do it in a natural way. They can get anyone. So, yeah, I think just general kind of advice is if anyone starts talking to you online, just don't give them any money. Yeah. I mean, that's that's extraordinary to, extraordinary to hear, because a lot of people may think that these people are just chances, putting the feelers out and trying as many people mm -hmm. as they can until they get a hit, a sort of Barnum method of, of scamming people but from what you're saying this is highly organized it's it's specifically targeted they have methods in place and they actually adapt to, to certain areas depending on if they're getting wise to these scams so it's, it's both so they do have specific methods and targets and plans depending on who and where they're targeting um but they also will target dozens of people a day at the same time so everyone's got a different layer of how this works um, and what their role is within it. So when you're the, the first stage of operations in a scam centre, maybe they come and they say, here's 25 people's names on Facebook. Get eight of them and you've achieved your success today. And what get eight means is 
start a conversation. And then once the conversation has started, and it'll often be, you know, it'll be like some 20 year old guy from India is pretending to be a, you know, beautiful model from Singapore. And then maybe even having to do things like have phone sex with them and, you know, develop this kind of very strange relationship. Once there's a certain level of trust developed within that, that, that day, then you pass that person over to the next person in the chain who will have more kind of sophisticated ways of pushing that envelope a little bit more and starting to maybe go into the financials. So you can be along a huge chain of people that are all in it on scamming you. And often people think that, like you said, oh, it's really sad. I've lost this relationship with this person as well. That person might have been 12 people. So, I mean, moments ago, you said you'd spent more time speaking to the the victims of the sort of human transportation aspect, the people who were, you know, kind of forced by these gangs to participate in these scams. What, what sort of people did you speak to and what, what kind of things did you learn from them? Yeah, so mostly people from you know, different parts of um, uh, Southeast Asia, Pakistan, India. Um, and yeah, it's been it's been harrowing. Um, so, for instance, there's a, there's a Vietnamese girl that um, that we helped get out. Um, so we've tried to basically organise and orchestrate a few a few rescue attempts and, and try to get people out where we can. This Vietnamese girl, and she, maybe like um, early twenties, she got in touch and said, "Look, this is happening. Heard you can maybe help." So my first step was to go to the the Vietnamese embassy in Phnom Penh in Cambodia, explain the situation. The, the guy behind the counter wasn't even surprised. You know, you walk into the kind of general visa area and he was like, okay, okay, what province is it happening in Cambodia? Said the province. It's a province that sits on the border of Thailand. So they said, you'll need to speak to the consulate office up there. We are not, we are not able to deal with this. I was like, okay, well, that's fine. I'm, I'll be going up anyway, but could you phone them and explain to them in Vietnamese the situation? I've got the girl's passport number. I've got a picture. I've got contact details for her whole family. I, I know the exact location she's in. And they said, no, you don't. It doesn't, it doesn't concern us. And then I had various kind of international law enforcement people helping. I had some local police that I trust that I was working with. And I was trying to arrange a rescue attempt. And then was I got a text from her about midnight saying, they know a journalist is trying to help me. Um, they said they don't care. No one's going to be able to help you. But they are going to move you to Myanmar um tomorrow so Myanmar is like an active war zone it's a lot more difficult to get someone out once they go there I've had people end up there and we can get them out but it's it's very difficult um and then had kind of armed what they call volunteer defense forces in Thailand to work on the border they were ready to wait for these people to, to do the interception they were there um and managed to go high enough up the chain so this one person could get out in time, basically sanctioned by the kind of chief of police of, of Cambodia. And then she came out and then she was held in various forms of other detention for months. And then the local police just took all of our money off her until they eventually let her go home. And then the Vietnamese police fined her for not having a proper visa, um, even though she had her passport taken off her by the scammers. And you got people like that and it's stories like that that are just quite constant. you got people who... Uh, one girl I've spoken to actually seen uh, a pregnant woman uh, miscarry in front of her because she was, uh, this was in Myanmar, she was she was beaten so severely with tasers, so baton tasers, so you can hit and you can you can electrocute them at the same time. And she was uh, beaten so severely, the woman miscarried, and then she was put back to work the, the very next day. Uh, one 
Chinese man that we spoke to. He was actually traf- uh, he was brought into Cambodia on a Cambodian police motorcycle and then driven right up to the gates of the scam center and delivered straight to the scammers. He tried to escape by jumping off, I think it was the, it was the fourth floor maybe, um, and fractured the bottom of his spine. And then the, the, the scammers looked at him and laughed and thought, there's no way you'll live. So they just let him crawl. They let him crawl out and they thought, well, you'll die on the street and it's not our problem. They managed to get in a tuk-tuk and he, he actually got home and managed to recover. So it's, it's, it's kind of stories like that that are just just constant. Basically, if they don't do a good enough job or if they have an attitude or they, they try to get out, then they'll be tased or beaten usually um, in really humiliating ways in front of everyone else. And they'll be kept in horrible conditions, you know, eight people in a, in a room forced to work maybe 16 hours a day. Um, they'll be underfed. They'll just be just desperate to, to die. So you'll see in many of these places that maybe it goes up to 16, 17 stories and they'll have bars on the windows that high. And that's not to stop you escaping. That's just to stop you killing yourself. Oh, wow. Sounds like hell on earth, doesn't it? And um, yeah. I mean, how, how best do we explain to Westerners maybe the, the level of corruption in these places, you know, from government to local law enforcement? I mean, I'm not, I'm not making the claim that there are no issues with the police in the UK or America or anything like that, but this is, this is a whole different culture, a whole different level, isn't it, when, where corruption yeah. is concerned? So the best way I'd, I'd explain corruption in countries like Cambodia, for instance, is something called the patronage system. Now, Cambodia is a very, very poor country, um, but it's managed to maintain a quite delicate peace for the last 30 years or so. And they do that because every there's not very much taxation that's taken by the government. Um, people aren't really looked after very well. But if you're in the, the government, the police or the military, or even if you're a teacher, any civil servant whatsoever, you have to pay up to 50% of your salary to the next person in the chain. So if you're a teacher, it's to your, your principal. If it's a, you're a constable in the police, it's to your sergeant. So a um, low-level cop in Cambodia might make $200 a month, and then they've got to pay $100 of that to their sergeant. So they've got to find a way to make up that lost income. And often the way that people do that is through illegal activity. And often they'll be directly offered that illegal activity by the police or by the military, whether it's illegal logging or it's bringing people over borders or it's, or it's moving meth, heroin or, or firearms. Uh, and then when you get to a higher level, you've still got to pay the half salary. But at that point, you're already kind of indoctrinated into this broken system. You've already got business interests, people that rely on you. And the police and military, because these countries are so poor, just essentially run like a kind of hierarchical mafia structure. So there's a lot going on here, and this is a a very fascinating topic. So if anyone's got any questions for Nathan, put them in the comments now, and I'll I'll put them to him as as and when they come in. Um, I'm just a, a question regarding your own personal uh, safety and concerns because obviously you, you're kicking a hornet's nest really investigating this these are gangs that stand to lose quite a substantial amount of money if they're exposed you know their their wallets are on the line then you've got to factor in the corruption uh, mm-hmm. and the complicity of the local authorities do you do you worry about your own security concerns when you're when you're investigating this when you're out there talking to these people yeah yeah definitely and like you do get times where you you know, me and Lindsay have been briefly trapped in kind of scam compounds with triads chasing after us. We 
you know, once ended up in the, the wrong queue trying to get in somewhere and realized that was for that was for the blood slaves and they were going to take our blood, then there are these kind of scary moments where you do think, what, what are we doing? Um, but, wait, 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 wait. Uh, What's a blood slave? What yeah, the so hell is a blood slave? So there's there's been, uh, with these scam centers, what's also come has been things uh, like taking, forcibly taking blood from some of the victims who aren't very good at the scamming. So they're not making enough profit of that. So they'll um, forcibly draw blood out of them and then they'll sell that in a black market, usually to people in, in China or the Gulf. Um, increasingly, it looks more like there might be links to organ trafficking as well happening, but I've, I've not definitely linked that to scam centers, but it, it seems to be happening in the same areas. Um, so all of that is yeah, it's definitely very scary, but I would say that as a kind of international uh, journalist working in these areas, you're definitely in a lot less danger than the, than the local journals and researchers who are taking a lot more risks and it's like their family that can be found, it's them that can be disappeared with a lot less hassle. So I'd say that they kind of, they're the ones that are, yeah, they, they, who should be a lot more concerned about their safety, but it, it, it can be a bit hairy at times. Not to linger on this uh, too much, but what does one do with black market blood? People need blood. Um, it's the same reason, you know, you go and donate blood a few times a year if you can. So, um, so transfusions. Yeah, transfusions. Okay. So these um, centres that these people are at, they obviously there's accommodation there, uh, mm-hmm. you can call it that. What sort of conditions are we talking in? I mean, talking about, do you have an idea of what a, a daily uh, routine would be for somebody stuck in one of these complexes? Yeah, it, it can vary quite a lot, but it could be, you know, waking up after sometimes only four or five hours sleep, maybe, um, maybe after doing a 12, 13 hour a day and you wake up and some of these centres, um, which I've heard in the BBC documentary talks about this as well, some of these centres will do motivational shouts and kind of martial arts training dances to get people in the mood for for scamming basically so you all stand and shout and sing and gets you motivated like a kind of corporate retreat thing but it's you know all forced um and then they might do that for half an hour or whatever and then they go into a small office with maybe another 10 12 13 people or so uh all doing various different scams and kind of passing the phone over to each other trying to get the next contact and if you're maybe on that the bottom of the chain just trying to develop the initial relationships and maybe you have to turn it into a sexual thing so then you've got some girls in the office as well that if you don't have the ai working for you like we mentioned earlier then you might hand it to the really pretty girl who then has to kind of go do that role and then she'll probably have another one to do after that so she'll hand the phone back and then you'll try to continue to develop that relationship um and then any kind of problems if you try to communicate with people who are you're not allowed to because you still you do still have a phone so these people can often reach out that's how we able to stay in contact they they need to have a phone for the for the job so it's impossible to kind of monitor exactly what they're doing but if they find out you've been on your own personal facebook or you've been speaking to your parents or a journalist then yeah you'll probably get beaten or electrocuted for a while in front of everyone uh, maybe chained up and, and left there for a few hours um and then you'll have a meal and you go to bed and you'll repeat it there have been people, obviously, I think you mentioned this in your report, and I think it was certainly mentioned in a few other articles, people who have escaped uh, these conditions, thankfully, have, have claimed that they've heard that you know hundreds of people have died in these conditions. Mm-hmm. Are these the kind of places where 
that could plausibly happen without so much as uh, a raised eyebrow from the authorities or, the, the, you know, the wider wider world? Yeah. Um, it's a place on the Cambodia-Vietnam border called Bavet. Um, there was a girl beheaded in one of these scam centres a few months ago. We were there the day after. No police presence, no uh, crime scene tape. We walked right up. Scam centre still operating. Armed guards are still there. Um, been beheaded 12 hours before. Uh, how, they just said it was, was a, a romantic dispute. The police have eventually had to confirm it because there was so much blood and so many photos online of what had happened. And they said it was some kind of like lover's tiff. And that's what it was about. Um, no one was arrested, I don't think, in the end. Um, but yeah, for sure. And it's very hard for even when governments, there's, there's definitely complicity to some extent with most of the governments that are involved with this happening in their countries. But there are people trying to do something about it as well. But it's incredibly difficult to access any of these places because the, you have to go through various different levels of police and state infrastructure. So the local police are, will be completely in the pocket of the gangsters. And then maybe there's a unit that wants to try and help you, but they need to gain access through several different layers. By the time you reach the scam centre, then you might be the stage where they've already moved that person because they know you're looking for them. So it's incredibly easy to get away with murder, the, the main issue is people killing themselves um and yeah often they'll just say they were yeah they were working abroad they died if the family even hear anything there's, there's plenty of families that just had their loved ones go missing and that's it the bodies just disappeared what is a positive development and for you in this because because you, you're doing all this great work exposing all this and you, you're a sort of an outsider looking in because that, we know what happens to dissidents from within regimes and, and areas of the mm. world like this. However, it's still mm. a, a company, what far, sorry, a country far away from the jurisdiction of Western forces in any, in any like practical sense. What would be a good development for you, so progress on this issue? Um. There's definitely been some positive moves, which is a kind of an overall acceptance that this is happening. So hmm. um, like Interpol came out uh, maybe last month and actually issued a statement on it. And it, was, it, was quite, it was quite thorough for the first time, which isn't going to make huge changes, but it starts to alert people to, to what's going on. And like I said, it's not just Southeast Asia. It's, it's the Gulf as well, places like Dubai. Um, so it, it's really everywhere. So that just gets a bit more awareness for local law enforcement to look out for this kind of thing, which if you do have any form of kind of um, significant Chinese influence in the country and there's enough corruption in the government then, then this will be coming there um, a positive is that now people are starting to address it a little bit more there's there's more scope for us to go and do investigations into it and there's more people wanting to listen to what we find in those um, what would be better is if we had more direct mention of it um, like in this country for instance the government has not said a word about it and you're talking tens and tens of thousands of slaves, possibly hundreds of thousands of slaves around the world. And fine, there's, there's various humanitarian issues across the world that you can't expect the UK to comment on all the time. But this one is directly impacting UK citizens as well, taking billions from the economy because of this. And again, sensitivities with China means that they're not talking about it. So I'd just like to see more of the conversation happening around it. I'd like to see more... Western countries finally admit to what's going on and, and offer to, you know, send some support in, in various different ways. Um, but it's not it's not looking good. 
Well, Anexus has commented, or asked, I suppose. Uh, so scammers on this scale are actually slaves, which I suppose is the really especially terrifying aspect of all this, isn't it? <clears throat> These are not opportunists, well, not entirely opportunists that are lining their own pockets there under the control of somebody else. Would, would slaves be an accurate description? Definitely, definitely. Not all of them, but um, there's a huge, huge amount of those scammers that are slaves, complete slaves. And to give you an idea of the scale of it, certain cities in, um, in Cambodia and in Myanmar and in Laos where you walk down the street and for six, seven, eight blocks, there's nothing but scam compounds, you know, eight to 12 story high, um, covered in barbed wire. And that is all that exists on those eight to 10 streets. It's huge, and there's no chance for those people to get away. So, yeah, I guess the equivalent does feel like you're, you know, you're walking down the old, the old cotton fields and just seeing line after line of slave, and no one's doing anything about it. Fred, uh, with the hours asked, is North Korea involved in any way? I, I am aware that I believe North Korea does engage in sort of human transportation over to the the Chinese border. A lot of people think they're fleeing the the North Korean regime just to find themselves sold into, uh, you know, transportation. There is, is there anything you're aware of regarding North Korea? That's uh, a really good question. Actually, it's something that me and Lindsay have been exploring quite a lot the past year. Um, a lot of the a lot of this activity picked up in places where there used to be North Korean restaurants, uh, which were actually a, a, a decent wee revenue raiser for the North Korean regime, but sanctions meant that they kind of had to close around the world. Um, North Koreans are involved in massive cryptocurrency scams, uh, the main one uh, being um, read about Lazarus Project in uh, Bangladesh, where they actually just almost took half of Bangladesh Bank's entire revenue. So they've got the capacity for enormous um, kind of crypto scams. Uh, they have departments of their government that are specifically involved in various forms of online crime and we know that they use forced labor quite a lot as well there's a few crossover individuals of the north korean state who are linked to various types of organized crime in these areas that this is happening i'm pretty sure there's a strong link but i've afraid i've not i've not quite proved it yet but hopefully hopefully we'll get there to prove it because i think there's quite a serious role of north koreans uh within the kind of bigger atmosphere of this that's really interesting I didn't, I didn't expect you to have a whole host to say that about North Korea. it looks like that's, <laughs> that's a really big issue so so what watch this space on that uh for sure i mean is the is the uh, socio-economic issue here with these places in terms of not many opportunities uh no way to earn a decent living that kind of creates a culture where you know, gangland uh, scams are, seems to be the only viable option to earn any money yeah, definitely. I mean, there's places in the heart of this in Cambodia is a place called Sinatville, which is known for Chinese casinos, basically. And now a lot of Chinese gangsters and kind of gang wars and awful things happening there. And if you speak to some of the, the kids at local schools, the few that are remaining there are for Cambodians, um, they'll basically say that, yeah, no, some form of illegal work within the casino or scam industry is probably what I'll go for. So maybe not a forced aspect, but they know that that's one of the only viable job opportunities for them so maybe they'll be a guard and they'll be able to leave at the end of their shift but they'll guard the slaves inside um, or they'll be a driver and they'll drive people from the airport to the to the slave centers basically uh, and people just see that as one of the few games in town um, and maybe a little bit less dangerous for them than selling meth on the street corner I'm just, I'm just going to throw a 
massive philosophical, cultural and social question, uh, you know, for no reason whatsoever. But Don has asked, um, is the violence against women cultural or is it solely born of poverty? That's a big question. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily either. It can definitely be a bit of both. There's definitely countries in the world where I don't know if the culture has created the violence against women, but it, it's, it's maybe not dealt with it in a way that's that's prevented it or slowed it down. Um, but I think when every country that I've done any work in has had really serious violence against women, especially women forced into, into sex work or just kind of you know, huge problems of sexual assault. Um, I think when you see that in every corner of the world, I don't think we can say it's cultural. I think it's 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 absolutely everywhere. And it's not necessarily poverty either. So a lot of it is just, um, I'd imagine, changing attitudes towards how you treat the opposite sex, what your roles are in society. And if you try to find a, a way to abuse people based on your understanding of them being lesser than you, then it will lead to some form of violence. Good answer. Um, so Fred, Fred's uh, made another point here about chargeback scams and card cloning are massive at the minute. Is this something that's coming out of that area of the world as well, cloning cloning cards? It seems seems like you possibly need uh, local support for that as well. Yeah, that's more of a local issue. I mean, it happens with various triad syndicates and kind of Russian-linked groups, especially in, in Eastern Europe. Like, they're, they're very proficient at it, and this happens a lot in the UK, but it's not so much related to the online side of things. Do you know so, much yeah, like you said, more localised. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I've, I realise I'm venturing into high-tech territory that you didn't come on to talk about here, but do you know much about card cloning and, and how people do it? No. No, great. No, That's fine. I, I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Jake's also asked: uh, Are the slaves uh, contractual property, as were American slaves? I don't think it's the same thing, is it? It's it's an interesting question, actually, because um, in Cambodia, um, what is helping a lot of the scammers who have slaves uh, fight a kind of not a legal case, but say enough to the cops that they can say it's not an issue. But it's mostly financial, but they'll get them to sign contracts and these contracts will be ridiculous they'll say i agree to not being able to leave this compound and i'll work for no money and sure you can beat me or whatever it is and they'll often be in a language that they don't speak but they'll, they'll force them physically force them to sign this thing that they don't know what they're signing and I've, I've seen some of the contracts and they're ridiculous and then when the police come in they go ah well it does seem like it's a labor dispute because you did sign the contract um and then on top of that what usually happens with these people is they're maybe held in one place for six months and then they move and they'll move because there's a huge online marketplace where they sell these people. Um, so there was a telegram channel that we had access to for a while where you could actually see this and, you know, ranges from, you know, so thousand low thousands to kind of tens of thousands of dollars for an individual, usually dependent on if they're good at the job, they can make a lot of money from scamming or to have potential for other things, like perhaps if they're an, an attractive woman, something like that, they can be moved into other areas of kind of forced work. So often these people are forced to sign contracts looked at like property by the stakes that they work in and are openly sold in essentially marketplaces. So they're treated like contractual property for sure. I was surprised to see... Uh, Pakistan come up in in all of this. How do people from Pakistan uh, end up being transported into these these systems and complexes? Well, again, it's because Pakistan's 
poverty situation is is so dire it, it doesn't take as much to convince people to come abroad for for a job and they've also got a really um a really really prominent culture of going abroad to work and then you know sending money home so it, it it's, it's now extremely easy in 2023 to set up facebook accounts that will just target pakistan males probably mostly males if they're going to go work abroad on their own and set it up to be like a, an IT job where all you need to do is be able to speak English and have basic computer literacy. And if you see that and then you offer an amount of money that isn't unbelievable, but is still good enough that you can send something home, a lot of people will take that. And then they'll pay for your flight. Um, and then you just arrive and you're picked up in a, in a minivan. And that's, that's you basically put into put into this. And the fact that there's a good chance you'll speak English is what they want from, from Pakistan um, or any other language proficiencies you may have that would be in kind of more rich countries. Then you can be really, really valuable to them. And we've well, seen one some of the things places that was especially... actually the Pakistan, oh, former Pakistan military have been used as well as former Indian military to offer security inside the compounds as well. So knowing you know how to use a gun and be willing to work for a few hundred dollars a month, which might get you enough to send something home. One of the things that was especially harrowing to watch in that, that BBC documentary that I keep coming back to was the punishments that you've referenced, people being beaten, electric shock, things like that. And this was caught uh, with some sort of covert, undercover uh, video reporting. Mm. And um, what, what kind of things would people be punished for in that method? Is this, is this a case of not meeting targets, not, not being willing to work? What, what are the reasons they'd be punished violently? It can change massively from different places. So there's some people I spoke to who are in forced work situations who are never beaten. Uh, they heard about it happening. Maybe they never actually seen it. Maybe it didn't happen to them. Um, but, you know, you're still not allowed your liberty. So it's still really, really difficult. Uh, and then other places, they'll beat you for the slightest thing, like not hitting your target that day. So you might get beaten or being a bit sarcastic to your guard or speaking to someone you shouldn't speak to. Maybe you're only allowed to speak to people directly in your team and you speak to another um, another department of, of kind of scamming networks. Um, and it can, yeah, or, or to the very worst ones, which are you trying to escape or you trying to contact the, the police or journalists to try and help you. How on earth are we, I mean, how on earth are we going to navigate this when AI is in full swing where they can replicate a voice for in? instance a likeness uh i mean these people falling for really obvious scams now these people falling for sophisticated scams mm. but w at, at some point it's going to become completely indistinguishable from the real thing mm. how are we how are we best going to safeguard it against it i think with this particular type of crime it, it still takes up physical space so although it's online, you still need thousands and thousands of people to do it. You still need huge online servers to be able to have the capacity to, to run this many computers and, and with, a, with a decent internet speed. So there are clear physical places that we can go. And I could take you and say there's 6,000 slaves inside there um, doing very sophisticated AI-based scams. So there's still going to be that physical infrastructure that is there. Um, so I guess that's our only hope of being able to do something about it. But then you need willing governments in those countries to want to do something about it. And the the kind of one of the biggest issues is that China's got this enormous infrastructure project called the, the Belt and Road Initiative. And within that, they're giving out billions and billions around the world to build roads and bridges and, and, and railways, but also deep sea ports and build up strategic influence around the world and have roads that go from, you know, copper mines and, and so on all around all around the globe. 
these countries are being given unbelievable amounts of money and the Chinese government claims it has no strings attached. So when the European Union maybe offers you some cash and then you have a coup or you kill a dissident or a journalist, they might put sanctions on that. The Chinese government doesn't care. Uh, so they'll, they'll continue to give you that same funding. So as long as we've got a system in place where are desperate enough and autocratic enough governments that are willing to take money um, without those strings attached, then they'll allow huge, huge uh, slavery operations and other types of really, really violent and damaging organized crime to, to happen in their countries. Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing point. I mean, given the, the, the way the CCP operates and its attitudes towards the flow of free information and journalists, how, how difficult is it to get accurate information out of there when you're investigating something like this? It's really, really difficult uh, to get uh, decent stuff from, from inside China. Um, people are understandably really, really scared. Um, I, don't, I don't speak the language as well, so have to work with Chinese researchers. Um, but they also always keep you right and let you know areas that they don't want to go near or touch because they know it will just come back to their families, even if, if they live abroad. So it's incredibly difficult because it is closed off. But the most challenging aspect is how understandably concerned for usually for their family safety, the, the, the people who would find this information are. For sure. And uh, is there any, I mean, you've you talked about people who are like uh, transporting from Myanmar, um, uh, Pakistan, you've mentioned Thailand, places like that. Do anyone, do, do people from the West ever fall victim of this sort of thing, to your knowledge? There's been a few. Um, in Cambodia, especially, uh, there was a few people who had, um, well, I think they'd overstayed their visa. I think they'd maybe committed a few crimes and got themselves into a bit of bother and their visa had overstayed and needed money. And the Chinese casinos were like, well, you can come come use your English language skills in here, buddy, and you can make some money. Um, what has happened when those people have went in, whether it be, it's not happened often, but it's happened a few times, whether it's Brits or Americans, their governments tend to get them out quite quick. Um, so, you know, maybe it'll be a few weeks, a few months, but a lot quicker than any other nationality. So it shows that there is some capacity to get those people out if you really, really want it. Um, and it's not a look that, Western governments want as their citizens clearly held in some kind of slavery condition. Okay, well, this has been massively eye-opening. It's something I had no idea about until arranging to speak to you, and so I'm, I'm going to definitely read up and, and learn more about it. And I'm very grateful for the work you're, you're doing on it. Um, can you point people towards where they can find more of your work or more, more information on this, or perhaps anything they can do to sort of get involved and, and help the situation? Yeah, um, I'm always posting about it. So if you follow me on Twitter, I think my Twitter's up in the chat there at Nathan P. Southern, or if you follow at Lindsay Kennedy, um, and you'll see kind of various different researchers and journalists that we work with. Uh, there's a great Cambodian journalist you should follow on Twitter called Mech Dara, M E C H D A R A. Um, he is the kind of most badass, ballsy journalist I've ever met. And We'll almost certainly have the Cambodian state coming after him any day. So, so check out his work and, you know, check out that BBC documentary that you said. We'll have more work coming out on it, um, more kind of detailed investigations and smaller articles as well. So if you follow my Twitter, you, 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 you'll see quite a lot of that coming. Well, Nathan, despite the incredibly heavy, harrowing uh, subject matter, I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you about it and I appreciate the, uh, the brave work you're, you're doing in this area. Thank you for coming on and speaking to us. Thank you very much, Stephen. Cheers. Take care. Wow, big issue. 
um something i need to learn more about for sure but uh, that's about it for atwood unleashed this week uh, i have been informed on good authority that we will be returning for the full four-hour extravaganza next week so make sure you join us there and thank you very much for all your your thoughtful questions and comments they've been great until next time have a good one